follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me today is Jackie Dunn, an award-winning journalist from Ireland, founder and CEO of Danu Resource. She's an emerging leader in helping entrepreneurs develop technologies and initiatives that restore the Earth's equilibrium globally. Her new book, which is uh, co-authored with Barrett Kohler, is Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Oh, I'm delighted to join you. Great to have you on. Okay, let's, in your new book, Rethinking Money, uh, you show us a new way to think about money. Um, my question is, why do we have to rethink money? What's our problem, and what's it going to do for us? Well, the system is not working. Uh, I think everybody has some sort of a, I say the vast majority of your listeners have some sort of crisis or issue with money. And even if you look at the experts themselves, the IMF, they say in a 40-year period from uh, 1970, there's been no less than 425 systematic crashes related to money. We're talking about sovereign debt crisis, uh, which we're reading about in, in uh, Greece, for example. There, of course, was the banking crisis, which we experienced very acutely here in the United States, 2007-2008. Uh, and then the actual money itself has failed, as with the ruble in Russia and uh, the Argentinian peso. So there's something going on here. And uh, it's not like, gee whiz, this thing has just fallen out of the sky. It's systemic. It keeps happening and happening and happening again. And it's very interesting when the uh, media covers it. It's like, oh, gee whiz, this is something new that just happened. No, it's uh, 10 countries roughly in crisis every single decade. It's uh, quite frightening. So, Jackie, you're saying, you know, as the media handles it, it's like, oh, my goodness, like this is like a crisis we didn't expect. What a surprise. And you're saying this is not a surprise. This is something that we know about. It continues to happen countries, yes. communities. So why aren't we doing anything about it? Yeah, I think whatever the experts may be saying is that I think people you know, sitting down at their own kitchen table and trying to make their budgets uh, work, you know, worried about uh, retirement, for example, how are they going to take care of themselves in their golden years, how are they going to get their kids through college. I mean, you just look around and you see, you know, cities uh, declaring bankruptcy, for example. You look at uh, urban blight. Um, I mean, you go on and on and on, and the list is absolutely endless. And the common thing uh, between them all is money. And most people say, gee whiz, well, there isn't enough money to go around. And what we're saying is it's, it's a problem of the type of money that we are using. Okay, explain that. What does that mean, the type of money that we're using? Well, all national currencies, be it a dollar, a euro, a peso, a yen, are all the same type of money. They're all created by banks. They have nothing backing them. There's no gold backing it. There's no resources backing them. 
and they're all created out of debt. So money gets created when you and I go into a bank and we want to take out a loan for a new house or for a car. And the bank manager makes an assessment of, you know, how well we can perform in our lives in order not only to bring back the principal that we have borrowed, but also the interest maybe over a 15-year period or a 30-year period. The crisis is that the interest on that loan is never created. We have to go out in society and compete among one another in order to bring that interest back over, as I said, a 15- or 30-year period. And so bankruptcy is actually built into the system. And, you know, it is a a very, very shaming. It's a very, very traumatic thing for people to declare bankruptcy. People lose their homes. And, you know... Has this system, though, Jackie, has this system worked in the past and and now it's not working because of other social, political, economic factors? I mean, at some time, our banking system was created, uh, and for a reason, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that the layperson, including myself, understand all of this, as you do, so put it in as simple yeah. terms as possible. But so <laughs> it worked, and now it doesn't work, and when did it stop working? That's a very good question, Catherine. Essentially, it was uh, designed about 400 years ago, and it was brilliant uh, at that time because it was at a very interesting point in our collective history. Uh, Before um, the system was introduced, the only way that you could make money is either by stealing it uh, through the spoils of war, marrying into it, or inheriting it. With um, the advent of uh, bank-based money, bank-created money, uh, it was then possible to make money out of money, and it was totally brilliant. And because of this design, it was then possible to have the resources that uh, came about to initiate and to help flourish this Industrial Revolution, which has given us this wonderful standard of life most of us enjoy around the world. However, that was another age that was another time. We're now in a totally different age. We're in an information age, hopefully moving towards a wisdom age. And what we're saying in the book is we need different types of money in order to reflect the zeitgeist, the the sensibilities, the issues that we face here in the 21st 21st century. Let's talk about some of those issues. And I have just one other little aside. I don't know if it's an aside, but does Ben Bernanke know about this? I'm sure he does. <laughs> we haven't spoken, but, uh, okay. you know, there has been a lot of media and a lot of coverage of, on these particular issues. But, uh, you know, we're not saying with these new types of currencies, as, you know, we're going to give some examples about here, that they replace the current system. We're talking about them to complement, to work in tandem, so there is a greater array of possibilities and choices for us all. All right, so we are talking about your book focuses on the use of complementary or cooperative currencies, as you just described them, that are used in conjunction, I want to repeat this, with the dollar to accomplish tasks that the dollar doesn't. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Absolutely. All right. Can we do it in a way that it's simplified, not yes, too complicated? Yes, yes. Let's, yep. get out of the, let's get out of the realm of theory. Okay. <laughs> let's get down to what ordinary people, the extraordinary things that ordinary people are doing all around the world. Think about it. Well, everybody listening to the show, I would be surprised if there isn't anybody listening to the show that isn't already using a complementary currency. 
think about it, frequent flyer miles. This started all 40 years ago as a marketing gimmick by American Airlines. And what they wanted to do was to make people, incentivize people to be loyal to their airline. So they had a spare capacity of uh, empty airline seats. And for X number of points, you could actually then be able to book a, a ticket to Cancun for vacations or whatever it was. Um, what they showed <clears throat> is that it was possible no, 40 years later, I mean, I think there's something like 92 uh, airline alliances around the country. And what it has shown is that it's possible to process billions and billions of frequent flyer miles very, very cheaply, very, very accurately, and they have been able to change people's behavior. Uh, I don't know about you, but I always look to my uh, airline alliance of, of, of preference every time I go somewhere because I do want to chalk up my frequent flyer miles because not only can I get, uh, you know, airline tickets, I can now get uh, nights at hotels, I can rent cars, all kinds of things I can do with them. I do that with my American Express card. I use that, and if I go into a big department store, they will often say, particularly in New York City, yes. uh, well, you can use our, you know, whether it could be Saks Fifth Avenue or Macy's or whatever it is, you want to, you want, do you want a Macy's card, let's say? And I say no because I want to use my American Express exactly. card so I can get my miles done. Yeah, so that proves that they've changed certain behaviors. You have your preferences. Now, um, you know, uh, frequent flying miles are not going to change the world, However, what we can see from these programs is what can we apply this in terms of the real cutting-edge social issues that we all face? As I said, you know, how do we take care of our elderly? How do we educate our kids? How can we incentivize people to shop locally and buy local goods and services? And what has happened is that communities have come together. Communities can be defined in all kinds of ways. It can be a geographical community that's based, say, in a neighborhood of a city. It can be a bioregion. It can be a state. It can be a community of businesses. It can be an old people's community. However you want to define community, they get together and they work out what are their unused resources and their unmet needs. Think of the airlines. Their unused resource was empty airline seats, and their need was for customer loyalty. When we look at all the unused resources, you know, in our towns, in our villages, in our countryside, their spare capacity, for example, in office buildings over the weekend, uh, schools uh, at night, uh, spare capacity, capacity in cinemas and restaurants, um, there is all this labor available that people that are underemployed or unemployed. And the list of our unmet needs, I think we all would agree, is pretty endless. So what communities are doing is linking unused resources and their unmet needs with a currency. Let me give you an example of this to bring it down home. Um, Japan, about 20, 25 years ago, really started to face a very, very serious issue. They had the fastest and still have the fastest growing, graying population in the world. And they did not have and don't have the resources to look after them. And so a currency was designed whereby, for example, I go down the road next door to a neighbor. I might drive her to a dentist appointment. I might help her read the newspaper. I might help her write um, uh, a letter, help her go shopping, whatever she needs. And for every hour that I spend helping my neighbor out, I get a credit in my 
uh, electronic account, and in Japan it's called Furiaikipu, which literally means caring friendship tickets. Now, these credits I can either save up to when I'm old and need help, or I can transfer them to another part of Japan so somebody can come in and look after my aging mother, for example. The beauty of this is that the elderly can stay in their homes for much longer without having to be institutionalized or carted off to an old people's home. Um, neighborhoods Wait, are... Wait, I want you to just stick with that one for a minute. So if you are helping an elderly person down the street, take her yes. to the doctors, the dentist, shopping, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. you get credit, electronic credit, mm-hmm. and you can take that credit so that somebody else will help your mother, or you can, or you can put her, let's say, in a nursing home for no. not for free, but you get. No, uh, the idea is this is just to help uh, people that are pretty able-bodied to stay in their own homes. They can actually they can stay in their own homes for longer, because uh, some of the reasons why people have to go into an elderly care facility early is because there's nobody to look after them. But, I mean, you're exchanging your credit for someone else to do that with your mother? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I can take my credits, for example. I can either save them up for myself or I have the option of transferring them over to another part of the country to where somebody can come in and look after my mom and get paid using my credits. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, the elderly, they did surveys of the elderly in Japan, and they absolutely love the system because clearly they can stay in their home for longer. And the issue of isolation is uh, addressed because people are coming in and, you know, uh, you know bringing them out for drives or helping them shopping, and relationships uh, build up. And that's one of the problems in our advanced societies here in the West is that we tend to get very, very siloed in our, you know, within our generation. There's very, there's very little cross-generational uh, interaction. And uh, additionally, it's not uh, costing the government anything. Uh, clearly, if somebody gets sick and needs, you know, a kidney dialysis, they go into the hospital. That's where the National uh, Health Service takes place. But for the day-to-day running of somebody's life, lives, making sure that somebody keeps an eye on an elderly person, this is the way to honor the time that somebody is spending. So that is a currency that's backed by time. And here in the United States, um, something called time banking was invented by a, a lawyer in uh, Washington, D.C. called uh, Dr. Edgar Kahn. And uh, time banking is probably the most successful and most common form of a complementary currency. That is a currency backed by time with the unit of account being an hour of service. There are about 400 such time banks here in the United States. They're growing by one to two systems uh, every week. And I think it's now operational. Last count, I think it was like in 34 countries. So, well, uh, all right, that's a fast-growing, I mean, a phenomenon, I guess, or trend, time banking. Yes. Okay, yes. so what are some of the things, I mean, this is something, it's really something I don't know that necessarily so many people, that's why you're on the show, have heard about it, and obviously why you wrote the book. But yes. So give us some more examples of time banking here in the United States. Well, here in the United States, uh, Mayor uh, Bloomberg in uh, New York has embraced time banking for the care of the elderly 
and there's a system that operates kind of like the uh, Furiakipu uh, system in Japan in the five boroughs of New York. Um, in San Francisco, for example, um, you know, you can get bicycle repair using time banking. Up in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, there is a system whereby people go in and do an analysis of the uh, use of uh, electricity in your home, do sort of a monitoring of it, and they get paid in, in time dollars. I mean, there's all kinds of applications all across the country of people offering services, and uh, they're getting paid in time dollars. So it makes so much sense. It, it's almost like, why wouldn't we do it? I mean, what would be the, well, you know, the, the, the people who, are, who would be saying, well, we, we, don't, we shouldn't be doing this? I mean, what are the negatives? Are there any? Well, uh, when I, you first start talking about this, you know, people sort of look at you a little bit askance and saying, this is a tax dodge. <laughs> <laughs> this is something nefarious going on. And what's really interesting about time banking here in the United States is that uh, Edgar Kahn got three rulings from the IRS to say that anybody earning money in time banking, their, uh, whatever they earn is actually tax-exempt. So you don't have to pay taxes on any time banking uh, transactions because of the social purpose of the work. With other complementary currencies, and there are many other types of designs that I'm very glad to talk about, uh, you do have to settle up your account uh, with the tax authority you know, on April 15th or whatever the tax day is in whatever country you live in. But, uh, you know, but it does get a number of things moving within a community, within a region, within a country. Jackie, does this have the possibility of helping to alleviate our, what is it, $3 trillion debt? I forget what keeps on growing. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, it's actually $16 trillion. Is it <laughs> kind 16? Of, it's, kind of, it's kind of frightening, yeah. There, there's an interesting um, hypothesis being floated out there in some papers uh, uh, that, that um, they're looking at. Uh, the IMF has something on this at the moment, whereby back in the 1930s, there was something called um, uh, the Chicago um, Plan, uh, whereby the issuance of money would be taken away from the banks and would be given to the government to issue and, you know, if the government of the, U of the United States decided that, gee whiz, we'll take over the issuance of money in our country, um, the debt would be um, alleviated uh, in very, very fast, uh, very, very quickly. Uh, it's paying interest on money that they're, they're borrowing from the banks is, is the issue, or borrowing from other countries is the issue. Does this have to be a global initiative? I mean, or can... No, no. Uh, the great thing about these things, it can be in your neighborhood. It can, you know, uh, you can't have it uh, among three people. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, you want to look at what the issue is you're trying to address. And, you know, um, they usually do very well around about, you know, 300 to 500 people. There are systems that have many, many thousands. But um, you need uh, a variety of services and goods in order for this thing to be successful. Well, let's talk more specifically about what those those goods and, and variety of services would be, say, with three to 500 people as part of this whole system. Yeah, it depends what you want to do. I mean, um, for example, there's a system in, um, in the north 
east of the United States called the Berkshires in the Berkshires, <laughs> whereby they have developed a currency that uh, operates locally and incentivizes people to support local business. Um, you know, there are many examples of that, you know, because people want uh, to support their local... Um, retail businesses? Retail or businesses. Are you talking, yeah. Yeah, we're not talking about big box stores. You yeah. know, we wouldn't be talking about a Macy's. They're national chains. But the mom-and-pop operations, you know, uh, the local jeweler, uh, the local cheesemaker, you know, so you are incentivized to support uh, that particular business by, you know, because a local currency, if I have a local currency in, uh, in the Berkshires, it, it, you can't spend it here in Colorado where I live. Uh, yeah, all right. Well, I'm close to the Berkshires, actually. I'm doing oh, the show yes, here from right. Albany, so I know yeah. exactly where you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so, you know, I mean, there can be um, um, uh, currencies uh, to incentivize um, learning. There can be currencies in order to get businesses uh, up and running. Why do you think, for example, Catherine, that uh, Switzerland is so economically stable? I think we'd all agree that Switzerland is sort of a bastion, a shining example of a solid uh, economy. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, I always think of Zurich as the banking capital of the world, but had that reputation. Yeah, and most people think, well, yes, they were neutral in the last World War. They've got a lot of banking institutions, headquarters. But, you know, it's good old strong Protestant uh, work ethic or, you know, there's something fantastic in that glacial spring water that they drink. It's none of these four issues. <clears throat> what happens is that they actually have a business-to-business complementary currency, and that has given them the backbone and the spine of resilience. Um, and it's a fascinating story. About uh, 79 years ago, uh, 17 businessmen, uh, you know, had a habit of getting together every month to talk about, you know, their issues. And in this one day that they got together, they all had their heads in their hands because each and every one of them had gotten notice from their respective banks telling them that their line of credit had been either cancelled or dramatically diminished. And they're sitting there looking, into, looking at each other and saying, what are we going to do? I mean, does this sound familiar? And uh, so they realized that they actually were going to banks to borrow the money in order to pay one another for certain goods and services. So what they decided to do is actually to create their own currency among themselves, which is called the WIR, W-I-R. And uh, here we are 79 years later. There was you know, a lot of pushback from the banks in the early years, but they, um, they flourished. Today, uh, Switzerland um, has this currency, uh, this B2B currency, about 16 to 20% of all small to medium-sized businesses in the country uh, use this currency. And uh, the usage uh, clearly goes up in a time when the banks aren't lending, such as now, and uh, obviously diminishes when they can actually get a loan from the regular bank in Swiss francs. Uh, everybody has to sort out their tax uh, situation on whatever weird they have done a transaction on and pay their taxes on it in Swiss francs. You can't, the government won't take queer in payment of taxes. But the great thing about it is, you know, when you have no other choice, you can actually, you know, call up a supplier or somebody that you, you know, you owe money to and say, hey, I can take care 
of this particular debt in, in Weir, and they agree or don't agree to do it. And one Swiss franc equals one Weir. So it keeps the engine of business going. Well, I mean, that's a great success story, obviously, and that's, you know, to, to uh, an example, I guess, that's a great example. Um, I Even getting more specific, because you talk about in this in the book, we can use, and I'm interested in this, particularly as a social worker, you can yeah. use this currency, this complementary currency for uh, for charities, for instance, which are in big trouble mm-hmm. now, uh, have a lot of difficulties getting monies from people that they don't have, in schools, education, I guess, in every area. Yeah. Um, so can we talk about that, how... how you know, using this this complementary currency could really impact on on charities and NGOs. Yes, uh, one of the um, ideas that are floated in the book that actually has been used is a emergency relief um, currency. As we know, um, unfortunately, the the uh, number of crises in terms of fires and uh, tornadoes and all kinds of problems seem to be on ever increasing. And one of the issues is that um, you know uh, charities come into a region, FEMA comes into a region, and you know everybody is very well intentioned, uh, but wants to make sure that the money is um, not going to be absconded with or used inappropriately. And I remember reading, you know, in the uh, in Louisiana down at uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, I mean, uh, there were examples of uh, misuse of funds where somebody went and bought an engagement ring for his fiance using, you know, FEMA dollars. I mean, this is pretty, you know, pretty awful. So, you know, the idea given um, is that um, they would create an emergency currency. So that way, you would get this particular script. And uh, whatever it would, you would be only able to use it for certain things, like you know the issues around shelter and food and clothes, etc. So you couldn't misappropriate the money by trying to buy, you know, a nice, um, you know, necklace in the local jeweler, etc. So this way, you would be sure that the money is being used in the right way because it's designed specifically to address certain needs that are being covered under the mandate of how the authorities wish to address the problems of a particular um, crisis. And this is a big problem, as I I understand, here in the United States, how this money gets misdirected in terms of charities. There was an uh, an article, I think, uh, that um, was sent to me, the 50, the the CNN, I guess, did a a report on the 50 worst charities in America. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, and, um, oh, yes, I saw that as well, you know, and people totally misappropriating funds. Uh, yeah, and it's easier to uh, misappropriate things if you have a currency that is so widely accepted or can be used. So, um, yes, so, you know, these, this is just one example of how you can be very, very pinpointed and precise in how you want the currency to be used and spent. All right, well, Jackie, let's take a short break, and uh, we'll be back. We'll continue with our conversation. Uh, Jackie Dunn, author of Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. So don't go away, because I'll be back with Jackie. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio.
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning has been Jackie Dunn. She's the author of Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. Um, and uh, she's an international financial journalist and currency expert. Uh, Jackie, so let's continue. We were talking about specifically, I guess, about uh, when, when we took the break, we were talking about charities and mm-hmm. how this, you know, this complementary currency can help prevent um, fraud. I, fraud, yeah, mm-hmm. help prevent mm-hmm. fraud, which I guess is pervasive in a lot of these, these it, um, it is. charities, it, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's a variety of different things these complementary currencies can address. For example, you know, one... Um, story that I absolutely love. It's, um, you know, just to really, you know, illustrate how you can take an unused resource and, and you know, hook it up with an unmet need is one of my, go- my chestnut stories is, uh, took place in Brazil about uh, 25 years ago. And the mayor of, of this town called Curitiba, which is now a city of about 3 million people, had a huge problem. There was very little money, hardly any money in the coffers. Again, something that, that sounds very familiar to all of us these days. But he had a huge problem. Uh, a number of people had come in from the countryside into the city, and a number of favelas, uh, shanty towns, had grown up. And the little streets uh, between the, the various dwellings are so narrow they couldn't get the garbage truck uh, trucks up the, uh, the pathways. But there was garbage absolutely everywhere, and as a result of this, there was a lot of disease, a lot of rats, you know, major problems. 
So he said, what am I going to do? So he realized that he did have a bus system that was running throughout the city, and it was very much underutilized. You know, it was only at like 20% capacity. So he sent out this notice to the favelas, and he said, for every bag of garbage that is pre-sorted between, you know, cans and paper and glass, he would give um, the person a token to ride on the buses. So lo and behold, in a matter of weeks, the favelas were picked clean with sorted out garbage in bags that went into large uh, bins in different colors for different um, pre-sorted materials. And people got uh, these tokens to ride on the buses. Then the local farmers started exchanging um, uh uh, food, such as locally grown vegetables and fruit, for these uh, chits, for these, these tokens. Then the fishermen would actually go out into the bay, and on days that the fish were not biting, they would actually trawl for garbage and bring back, you know, big, big bags of garbage, which they actually turned into the recycling centers, and they would get tokens. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, and then these could be used as money. So what, uh, uh, what was really interesting, these are not just interesting little curious uh, currencies that grow up. The mayor of Curitiba designed several other currencies linking other unused resources with unmet needs to where within about six years, the people of Curitiba had a standard of living that was one-third higher than anybody else living in the rest of Brazil as a result of having a variety of complementary currencies. So, so Jackie, really... why wouldn't every, I mean, I've been to, lived in South America and visit, mm-hmm. not so frequently now, but mm-hmm. um, why wouldn't all the countries or cities or little towns follow that example? I mean, with that kind of success, yeah. I mean, what would hold them back from doing that? Mayors yeah, don't want to do it, or polit- there's a political stuff that goes on that they try and prevent this from happening, or what are some of the glitches? I, I think, um, you know, it's really interesting. This is really starting to take off. You know, back in 1984, we counted only about two social purpose complementary currencies in the world. Now there are over 6,000. So these are growing. And why are they growing? It's because of how much cheaper computing is. Everybody can get access to a computer very, very cheaply by their own, very, very cheaply. They can use one in a library. Uh, There's access to social media. And, um, you know, you can go uh, on you, you can go on the Internet, you know, download uh, YouTube videos, um, all kinds of information is, is available and with social media. So more and more people are becoming aware of this and knowing that it is possible to get together within their community and have a conversation about, okay, how do we want to address X, Y, and Z problem? When you think about it, you know, if you're dealing with a local community or however you wish to describe a community, who better to come up with a solution for a problem they have than the people that are there on the ground themselves? Well, I'm thinking about this when you talk about a community, because as you said uh, earlier, you can define a community. It can be defined by a, a physical 
uh, location or a group of people, like-minded people. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. about, in terms of what you're saying, and maybe it exists and I don't know about it, but social workers, psychologists, therapists are having mm-hmm. a terribly difficult time being able to see clients who need to see them because they can't afford to pay. Insurance yeah. only pays for, let's say, four yeah. weeks of therapy when the person needs a year of therapy. Yeah. How would you translate that into a complementary currency, or has um, it been done? Well, I think, you know, in the case of, of, of a psychiatrist, for example, or a psychologist is that they would take, um, you know, partial payment or, or they would take X number of patients that could pay in a local currency. Um, so that way the, um, the, the professional could take that money and they could spend it elsewhere in the community, such as getting, you know, their hair done, going to the cinema, uh, buying something at the local farmer's market. So I think it would have to be uh, part and parcel of a local community uh, currency. You know, if there was just one for psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, the question is where could they spend that money? And it doesn't make sense to have a, a dedicated currency. They need something that is actually grounded in their local community is, is my guess just looking at it at, a, at first blush. How would you start one of these if you felt a need or, what, what, you know, take us through really specifically the process. Someone's listening to the show and thinking, well, I have an idea for a, you know, or see a need for a certain kind of complementary mm. currency. Do I go online? Do I go to my mayor? What do, what do I actually do? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really fascinating uh, process. Um, and uh, I'm not saying it's difficult, but I'm not saying it's a slam dunk either, depending on what you need to do. I think the idea of just creating a currency for a currency stake is a, mis- is a mistake. There, you know, that's a push model. What you want is a pull model. You've got to look at where your community is hurting, where the real need. That way it's much easier to get people jumping on because always they say, oh, gee whiz, yes, that is a problem we're facing. And, yes, I understand how a currency would help us. So you've got to get into dialogue with your community, you know, um, and I feel it's very, very important, you know, um, if you're doing something locally is – is to get as many people involved in a conversation as possible. Um, if it's a local currency that, you know, local business people support it, you know, it's not just a currency that uh, massage therapists use, uh, with all due respect to massage therapists, you know, it just, it gets, it gets, you know, it's too narrowly defined. You've got to make sure, you know, you've got the bookmaker, the candlestick maker, the butcher, you know, as many people and many different types of services and products as possible. And, you know, and to get the backbone of business in your community involved and to get into conversation uh, with um, the local government. So they're educated about it. They understand. So it doesn't become this strange thing that is suddenly growing up. And I think it's wonderful with all these uh, communities, particularly local governments, that are going through all kinds of horror in terms of trying to make their uh, budgets, is if they were to uh, accept partial payment of some of the local taxes in a local community currency. And we see examples of this uh, happening in London, for example. Uh, Brixton Pounds, which is a uh, system in a suburb of London, the local authority are now accepting partial payment of taxes in that local currency. That way, you know, that money's coming into the coffers and they can, you know, buy things that the council needs or they can pay um, some of their employers partial payment in that local currency. So, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, you said there are 6,000 complementary currencies. Yes. Do they tend to be uh, kind of focused in one area, let's say Europe or, or South America, you know, the United States, or are they just dispersed throughout the world globally? It's very interesting. Uh, the United States, unfortunately, is behind the curve in this. Uh, some of the best countries are in Latin America, such as Brazil. What they're doing in Brazil is so exciting. Uh, Japan has uh, a number of these currencies, and, of course, in Europe. I think wherever they felt the pinch the earliest, I think that's where they've embraced it. But uh, there were these complementary currencies uh, well before the current crisis as well. So um, there was a need before uh, the crisis that we're currently feeling. Do we always have to wait for a crisis, or can we do some prevention? I mean, oh, I think so, and that's the really exciting thing is, I mean, there, even in the best of times, you know, uh, there are children that need, you know, uh, education, you know, uh, people like our elderly need to, help, to be helped out. I mean, there is an unending array of, of, of things that need to be addressed in our society. For example, urban blight, for example. There's a great um, story uh, of a currency that was developed in Ghent, which is the second largest city in Belgium, for example. And the local uh, administration was having a really hard time with a suburb of this, uh, this town that had a very, very high immigrant uh, population with about 20 um, different languages spoken, mostly Turkish, and, you know, a number of illegals. Uh, but it was really downtrodden, a really, really miserable place. And so they sent out a questionnaire and asking, you know, what did the people want? And because a lot of them came from the countryside, they said they would give an arm and a leg to have a little plot of garden where they could grow some of their own fruits and vegetables, spend time with their kids, teaching them gardening skills, and just having the pleasure of being able to grow stuff, you know, in the middle of the city. So they, the uh, local administration, local government, found uh, an old site of a factory, which they leveled, and out of that large site, they actually um, set up small gardens, say, by about six feet by eight feet. The interesting thing about these gardens is you could rent the space for a year, but you couldn't rent it in euros, the conventional national currency. You had to rent it in a local currency, which is called Turkas, which means little towers, which is the emblem of Ghent. So lo and behold, people said, oh, my heavens, we'd love this. How do we earn the uh, Turkas? So the city came up with a list of, of activities by which people could earn this local currency, everything from putting a, um, uh, pots of flowers outside your door, on your windowsill, cleaning up the neighborhood, changing your light bulbs to something that's much more energy official, efficient. Rather. So lo and behold, everybody got really excited and started um, uh, earning money hiding up the neighborhood, you know, dealing with graffiti, whatever the problems were. So within a three-year period, well, actually in the first year, they had more volunteers than they could possibly use, and their small little budget of 50,000 euros circulated among that little neighborhood three times over to where this year, which is three years into the system, that uh, budget will circulate 20 times over. So you're getting 20 times the bang for your euro. 
and you have a very, very happy neighborhood, and other richer neighborhoods in that city of Ghent also want their own little complementary currency to address the issues and what they want to do in their particular neighborhoods. Great story, Jackie, but um, does this only work in smaller in smaller cities or towns? I mean, how, do, how would it go in New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles? Well, we're, we're, well it's like cells in the body. You know, it goes make, it goes, uh, make up the, the larger organism. You know, I think there are all different types of neighborhoods in New York, for example, and in Chicago and in Los Angeles. And, you know, you do, you know it's for a neighborhood to get together like Chelsea in New York or whatever, uh, Compton in uh, Los Angeles, and the people get together and talk and say, what do we want to do? You know, do we want to have uh, pay people, you know, to monitor the local park to make sure there isn't drugs or violence going on? Whatever it is, you know, there's, there is no end to the possibilities of what can be created to resolve the issues that we face by simply rethinking money. Rethinking money, being aware of it, and obviously you say be aware of the problems in your own community or in neighborhoods in a big city, who are the best people to organize this? And grassroots kinds of people? I kind of get back to that because you do need organizers. You yeah. need people to put it together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what really works, what we see work extremely well is when uh, a system is hyper-democratic. You know, it's not about creating a little fiefdom, you know, a little authoritarian uh, <laughs> group. <laughs> you know, we talk about, you know, being democratically elected. It's also very important before you set up uh, with a, a community currency, and this is what we're finding, you know, looking at examples all around the world. It is a community currency that actually sets up a list of the rules of, of running the uh, currency itself <clears throat> and actually have the apparatus for dealing with conflict. Because most people think, oh, we're never going to have a conflict, and therefore, you know, when a conflict uh, emerges, they don't have the apparatus to fairly deal with it. So you've got to have, you know, conflict resolution, you know, already worked out. What if there is a problem between two members or several members? Well, do, do we have the mechanisms in place to unfurl that problem and to bring out a very positive, uh, fair outcome? So being hyper-democratic, having rules of engagement, and being transparent. You know, uh, an awful lot of these currencies actually post everybody's um, uh, type, uh, the amounts of money that they have in the system on the Internet. You know, it's, it's that transparent. So that stops um, counterfeiting, for example, or people, you know, not being, um, not playing by the rules. And so um, the more transparent a system is, the more democratic it is, and the more involved they are in discussing the really tough issues, the more successful the complementary currency will be. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So conflict res resolution, democratic transparency, that's kind of a buzzword today. It is. Yeah. And it really is. But in these things, you know, there is no transparency in our conventional system. You know, we don't know what banks are doing, and there's all kinds of speculation what's really going on behind the scenes. And that breeds mistrust. And trust is the cornerstone of anything because money is not a thing. Money is an agreement with 
within a community to use something standardized as a medium of exchange. And if we look at history, all sorts of things have been used as a medium of exchange. You know, in our own history here in the United States, during colonial times, tobacco leaves were used. I mean, in other societies, stones, uh, decorated axes, all kinds of things have been used as a medium of exchange. So once a community comes together and comes to an agreement about what their new standard of uh, a standardized unit of account is going to be, there is no end to the possibilities of what they can do. Jackie, we're going to have to change our attitudes, though, up towards money because I think here in the United States, uh, one of the one of the things and. In, in people will not talk about either to their neighbors or at work is money. They'll, we talk as a culture about sex. We'll talk about our relationships with our partners, our husbands. We'll talk about our kids. We'll talk about our health, mm-hmm. intimate details. But when it comes to talking about money, it's a taboo. So this kind of goes, it's really the opposite of how we view money or how we see money yeah. um, here in this culture, in this country for Yes, you bring up a very, very good point. I mean, I, money is the last great taboo. Uh, as you pointed out, you know, we've dealt with sex in the, uh, in the 60s. And in you know, the city. We dealt with death and dying with the AIDS epidemic and, you know, the repercussions of, of, of war that we've experienced, particularly in the last decade. And now the last great taboo for us to look at is money. And, you know, it is so... Oh, it is so wrapped up. Even the professionals, when they talk about it, they use terminology that most people don't understand. I mean, even the economics textbooks doesn't say what money is. It talks about what it does. And so there's all these misconceptions about it. And also, you know, how it is hot-wired into our psyches. You know, there's an awful lot of shame about it because we don't feel we're earning enough or we don't want to reveal you know, what we are earning, and even if we're extremely wealthy, we don't want people to know what we have because we're concerned about people uh, forming friendships with us or going into business uh, with us for all the wrong reasons. So it's a very highly emotional uh, topic. So how have you dealt with that? I mean, you, you besides, I mean, you've written the book, you're an author, lectures, people talking about money, um, it's a very, even in wealthy, you just mentioned wealthy families won't even talk about monies to their children. You know, and it's a difficult, you know, passing yeah. money on generation to generation. People mm-hmm. won't tell how much money they earn yeah. in terms of salaries, whether they think it's too much or too little. Exactly. Um, so how do you handle that? What kind of questions do you get? That was really my thing. When you go around and you give lectures and seminars, what kind of feedback do you get about this, you know, the taboo attitude towards money? One of the most absolutely, it's been such a pleasure going around the country talking about this because people realize, oh, my heavens, this is what money is. It's an agreement, and we can change our agreements about money. And I can go into a lot of detail, um, uh, you know, when I'm talking with people is, what the DNA of money is and how it actually causes us to act in certain ways because of how it is structured and how understanding its structure, like having a positive interest rate, for example, and the devastating effects it has not only in our lives but also on our planet. Uh, With these new currencies, there's no interest rate or a negative interest rate that has totally different um, behavioral outcomes. And when people understand that money is a mental construct, it's something we dreamt up, 
And it's possible to dream a new dream once we understand how money works and how we can make it serve us rather than us being its slave. Well, that's well said. So we can change the, our, I guess we have money, the DNA, there's the DNA of money, but it's, our, it's in our DNA, I guess, in terms of how we relate to money. We can yes. change our relationship with money. Yes, it's, you know, but as our consciousness changes, as our awareness changes, uh, it is possible then to change the outcomes of money, as I said, so it becomes our servant rather than the other way around. And it's a very, very exciting moment in time because we can find out different types of money with totally different outcomes that engender such things as democracy, that engender cooperation. And we don't have this hyper-competitiveness that we have in the conventional system. I mean, we can bring about a new type of society, a society that we want to enjoy ourselves and to bequeath to our children and our grandchildren uh, at this point in time because we have so much access to information and the ages, uh, the wisdom of the ages. We can design new currencies to have these outcomes. And this is what is so exciting because basically what we are talking about is the democratization of the money creation process. Yeah, I like that. We don't have to be adversarial. Get away from this adversarial model you're saying of money. How did you, just on a personal level, how did you get into this? Where, you know, I mentioned briefly your, generally your background and mm. international financial journalist and currency mm. expert. How did you get into that initially? It was just an accidental meeting with somebody who became my co-author, Bernard Leotard. And he had, had an ex, has an extraordinary career where, uh, through just serendipity, I suppose, he's had an opportunity to look at money working in so many different domains. I mean, he uh, has been uh, a central banker. He worked for the Central Bank of Belgium and was one of the co-designers of the initial uh, currency that became the euro. He was, uh, you know, he worked with governments, uh, particularly in Latin America, helping them with their balance and payment. He was a professor of finance. He ran the most successful uh, currency uh, trading company, offshore trading company. So, you know, if somebody does that, one of those things in a lifetime, that's great. He's done several of these things in a lifetime. And, you know, when we met about 12 years ago, um, um, he was saying, you know, this system doesn't work, and uh, began, we began a very deep conversation about money and what money is, and uh, he introduced me to this nascent field of complementary currencies, and as they say, the rest is history. Great story. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't, it's, what did you say, 12 years ago was when you met? Yes, yes. And so you and so what you know we got a couple minutes left. Uh, where do you see this going? What are you doing? You know, I mean, obviously you wrote the book, and we want to get that out there. You can go online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. But Jackie, just to give people more information, uh, do you have a website? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Jackie Dunn, J A C Q U I Dunn, D U N N E, on Twitter and on Facebook. And um, I think what is really exciting is uh, to see what the new designs will be. I mean, we've described a lot of the current things that are happening, uh, the ingenuity that's currently happening. What I'm excited to do is people taking these central precepts, these central ideas, 
and going off and designing new fantastic models that we will learn about and, and, and be in conversation with people about. I'm excited to see what comes back to us in terms of, of, of design and in terms of solution. And I think the, the great takeaway from this is there's no need for any more pessimism. Uh, yes, there are some enormously difficult uh, problems we're all facing, but by linking arms uh, in our communities, again, however we wish to describe our communities, we as ordinary people can address our own problems ourselves. And I think it bodes well for an absolutely glorious future. Well, it sounds that way, and it seems to me also, and perhaps you're doing this, but I'm thinking about the, you know, Harvard MBA, Stanford, Wharton, are, are they on board with this this with you? Not yet. These are early days. You know, this book hopefully is hopefully breaking through uh, to more of the mainstream. You know, it's been upstream, so I'm hoping this can start going more mainstream, whereby, you know, uh, universities, uh, governments, uh, I mean, governments abroad are sitting up and taking note, but, you know, more and more people as they learn about it, and we'll get, this will come more and more into conversation. Great. It's been great having you on the show today, and I have to say I learned a lot. Uh, Jackie Dunn, currency expert and award-winning journalist and author of Rethinking Money, How New Currencies Turn Scarcity into Prosperity. And as I said, you can buy it at bookstores everywhere online, Amazon.com. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, Catherine, thank you so much for, for a great conversation yeah. and for this opportunity. Thank yeah. you. Great to talk to you. Me too. So we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I uh, hope you had a, a good day uh, with us and uh, enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 